It took 1,400 years for the church to lose track of the Bible. It wasn't until the time of John Wycliffe that somebody noticed that there was a vast discrepancy between what the New Testament church believed and practiced and what the modern day or present day church of the Middle Ages believed and practiced. And God began to use John Wycliffe to plant a desire to rediscover his word. And so most of us know that the, the, the Great Reformation was a back to the Bible movement as they moved into the 16th century. Um, Luther and Calvin and Knox and all of those guys, they wanted to re rediscover what the bib biblical teaching and practice was. But I believe it would be a mistake to think that the Reformation completely rediscovered the Bible and all of this uh, New Testament pattern in the space of one century, and that by the end of the Reformation it was all restored. I don't, I don't think that happened at all. There were all kinds of things that had not yet been restored to the church. The Reformation began the pattern. There was a beginning of a back-to-the-Bible emphasis, but it's taken centuries of people, um, sometimes with agonizing uh, uh, sacrifices, to reintroduce things that most people did not want to have reintroduced into their lives, because frankly, we're all just more or less content with what the way things are, what, what things are at, at present. And few people down through history have had that passionate desire to rediscover biblical truths and patterns that go beyond their age. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's been a, a back to the Bible movement that's lasted centuries, just, just for a few examples of this. The, the, the Reformation did not rediscover the Great Commission of the Church. Just didn't. It, did, didn't. it didn't rediscover and cast out into the Church the pattern of go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. It was not until the 1720s and 30s and the middle part of the 18th century that Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf established the kind of prayer that put people back in touch with the heart of God and the heart of God began to, to infuse hearts with a passion for the Great Commission and then pretty soon those believers in the Moravian community of von Zinzendorf began to go out to the Caribbean and begin to bring the gospel to slaves. And that was the very first little piece that would lead to the modern missions movement. And then you'd have William Carey uh, later in that century uh, uh, feeling the need to go to India and bring the gospel to India. Uh, but then there would be those, uh, uh, the old line group that said, young man, if, if God had wanted to bring the gospel to the heathen, he could have done it without the likes of you or me. And so 
you see how the, the, the Reformation had not rediscovered the Great Commission. And it was moving into the 19th century that the great mission societies would be formed and God would work this piece of it into the fabric of his church. Didn't happen during the Great Reformation. Or how about the power of the Holy Spirit for witness and service? Uh, the, the reformers did not rediscover that part of the pattern either, where Jesus says, stay in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. He wanted us going out to, 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 to complete the Great Commission, not in our own power, but in the power of God. Uh, well, the reformers had no concept of that. or, or they, Yes, they had a concept in certain limited ways in the preaching of the word, and God used what he could find by way of faith. But the, the, the power and gifts of, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 were not a part of the teaching in the, in the Great Reformation. And the full equipment of the saints was simply not part of the pattern that the reformers had at the beginning. It would take uh, Charles Finney to, to begin to to speak about the baptism with the Holy Spirit, and then Moody, and then Finney, and then the, the Azusa Street folks, the birthing of the Pentecostals, the charismatic movement, and pretty soon God is getting this worked into the church. But it's going to take centuries, and it's going to be long after the Great Reformation ended. So it's, it's God trying to bring his church back to the to tremble at his word and to take seriously every piece of the word, every bit. We need the full equipment as we, as we move into the end of the age. But it's, we're, we're obstinate people. We don't really think we need this. We think we can get along okay without it. We think the way it's been so far is good enough. If it was good enough for our forefathers, it's good enough for us. And that is the kind of attitude we continue to bring. And it makes it painfully slow for God to reintroduce all these treasures. Well, the same is true when it comes to end time promise. It's been very, very difficult. And what, what I am saying and what I am teaching is what we need to do is to get back to the beginning and back to the gospel of the kingdom that we have not preached for many, many centuries. Because the gospel of the kingdom went out of favor in the fourth century with the rise of the Roman Catholic Church. And we'll deal with that as we go along. But what, what I am saying and what many are saying today is we, re, we need to rediscover the original teaching about end-time theology. And what that is called today is historic premillennialism. In the original days when it was being taught, it was simply taught that blessed hope. That's what it was. It was the teaching that the apostles and the apostolic fathers all taught. And then we began to get away from this teaching. Well, the, the teaching about eschatology was rooted in a much broader teaching the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is what Jesus taught. It's what the apostles were careful to teach. 
And then the apostolic fathers after them, coming along, people like Polycarp, Irenaeus, Papias, Justin Martyr, Hippolytus, Tertullian, these are the apostolic fathers, and they had one goal, and that was to preserve the teaching that came to them through the apostles. So the apostles preserving Jesus' teaching, the apostolic fathers preserving the apostles' teaching, the goal was to keep the truth from the contamination of people who are coming at it from outside in each generation who are trying to change it. No, they wanted to keep it pure, keep it right, keep it the same. And so that's why the apostolic fathers were, were called apostolic fathers because they were preserving the teaching of the apostles. And that teaching is what we today are calling historic premillennialism. So, um, let me give you an example of historic premillennialism from one of those apostolic fathers. First, I think it's important that we look at Scripture and understand what is the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is not quite as simple as what most preachers are preaching today, um, which is the gospel of the salvation of the soul. In other words, most preachers today think that it's simply a matter, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? Jesus will put you in heaven, and if you don't believe in him, then you will go to hell. That seems like a very straightforward message, and um, it is true to an extent, but the gospel of the kingdom is more complicated than that. So the gospel of the salvation of the soul is, is an attempt to simplify things uh, down into something more understandable, for example, to children or to for initial converts, uh, people who are just coming into this. But the gospel of the kingdom was taught by the apostles, and one of the best teachers of it was the apostle Paul. Okay, Paul, I, I like the book of Ephesians because it it is the simplest presentation of the gospel in, that we have in the New Testament. Uh, he, he, Paul doesn't get into a lot of pastoral concerns. It's his attempt to put the gospel simply and completely in one book. It was not even addressed just to the Ephesians, but it's to all the Christians. So it's his attempt to, to get the gospel out to all the churches in in simple but complete form. And so Ephesians states in chapter 1, what are the basic ingredients of the gospel of the kingdom? And uh, it's, it's more than just, where are you going after you die? He begins by saying, um, we become adopted into the household of God. We become children of God. And, and that comes with a whole set of of promises and powers that we inherit because we are sons and daughters. We're not slaves and servants anymore. Then he goes into uh, the, 
redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Redemption and forgiveness of sins kind of go together here. Uh, we are forgiven our sins and therefore released from the power of them, which is a form of bondage and slavery. Redemption is a slavery word. It talks about being bought out of slavery. And so this is the second and third ingredient in the gospel of the kingdom. Now the fourth ingredient is the one that we're going to be focusing on here because this is where God tells us what is the blessed hope? What is it that we're hoping for? What is the future for? What, what is the vision that God has that he's given to us from his throne of grace that guides us uh, in, in, in what we long for that he has for, for us and for the whole earth? And this is what he says. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That's his goal. That's his statement of the goal. And you find this in Romans 8. You find this in 1 Corinthians 15. You find it in the book of Revelation. You also find it in the Old Testament. You find it in Isaiah. And, uh, and so what we have to do is to make sure we understand before we get into eschatology, what's the gospel of the kingdom? What is God after? What is his vision we have oversimplified this thing. And so as we read on, we discover the three more things. Okay, the, the, the blessed hope and, the, and the, 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 the vision for the future is the fourth, the fourth element in the gospel. So then we go on to five, which is we get a new purpose for living. If you understand the kingdom of God, then you're living no longer for yourself, but for him who died for you. And so you, you have a whole new purpose for your life. That's number uh, five. And then six is the salvation of our souls. Okay, that's a piece of the gospel of the kingdom, you see. It's not the whole gospel. It's a piece of it. And then number seven, the Holy Spirit, which is an earnest, it's a down payment God gives us the Holy Spirit, so we'll have evidence that we are in this group of people who are saved. We're experiencing salvation every day. Okay, so let's, let's try to latch on then to the full gospel of the kingdom and realize that we're moving towards something, not just trying to get to heaven, but we're moving towards something that God is doing to bring the earth to a completeness that we do not see as yet, so that the earth and heaven are at one. The earth has been restored to the fullness of its glory that God has in mind for the earth, so that earth and heaven are all under one head and the glory of God fills everything. Okay, and now let's read from Irenaeus. As the new heavens and the, and the new earth, which I make, remain before me, says the Lord, so your seed and your name will stand. He's quoting Isaiah there. 
As the elders say, then those who are thought worthy of abode in heaven will go there, others will enjoy the delights of paradise, others will possess the splendor of the city, for everywhere the Savior will be seen according as those who see him will be worthy. So what is he saying here? He's saying, yes, some of us will spend eternity in heaven, but some of us will spend eternity on earth because the earth will be restored to the fullness of its original intent when God created the earth. And then there will be another entity, the new Jerusalem, that comes down out of heaven and it rests between heaven and earth. And so you have heaven, earth, and the new Jerusalem, which is the city that he's referring to. And all of those are places where eternal life will be lived out. Well, this is the gospel of the kingdom as the apostles understood it. And it's all a part of a greater perspective that we're calling historic premillennialism. And then on top of it, in that verse that I just read, Irenaeus says, this is what the elders all teach. These are the people I mentioned. These are the apostolic fathers of the church. These are the, the ones who are in charge of preserving the teaching in Irenaeus's day. They're the ones who wrote on doctrines and, and trying to preserve the teaching of the apostles. And so this was their concern. It should be our concern um, as we move into the end of the age. And so if this teaching, teaching seems strange to you, that God has a plan for the earth, that people might come back here with Jesus when he comes back, and we might uh, uh, be a part of things as Jesus is restoring the earth until it's all under one head and it's all full of the glory of God. Um, to that degree, um, you can profit from the original teaching on eschatology if it really seems strange to you. Um, the original teaching of Jesus was more complicated than, you know, the line with Peter up in heaven in the clouds and the pearly gates and you open the door and you go in and you're in heaven. It's it's much more complex and, frankly, interesting than that. And so what we'll be dealing with this in this series is what the original teaching of the kingdom was as to the future. Now, there's a few... Um, resources that I would like to recommend as we end this teaching uh, today. One is Dan Juster and Asher Intrader's book, Israel, the Church, and the Last Days. As far as I'm concerned, this is the best book as of today on the subject of eschatology. And it's written by uh, two Messianic Jews, who live in Israel, and um, I believe that the reason why I, I, I really want to recommend this book is that it's time for us to listen to the Messianic Jews, us, we who are of the Gentile part of the world, of the church, need to listen to the Jewish part 
uh, because we are together. We are together in this. Um, Jesus has united us, Jew and Gentile, together by the blood of Christ. And so if that's true, then it's not, not just a theory. It's, it's us listening to each other and drawing from each other and contributing to each other. And so this is the first book that I want to recommend as we move into this study of the end times. And then this book, A Case for Historic Premillennialism, an Alternative to Left Behind Eschatology. Uh, in other words, um, as we move towards a rediscovery of what the original teaching was about the future coming of the kingdom of God, um, we're, going to, we're going to move in what for many people is going to be some new directions. They're not new, they're very old, but we're, we're going to be moving in those directions. And if you want uh, a more scholarly uh, uh, coverage of this, this is the book for you from the people at Denver Theological Seminary. And then I also want to recommend MikeBickle.com. MikeBickle.com. Mike is the director of the International House of Prayer in Kansas City. He is also reintroducing the teaching historic premillennialism. His teachings are top-notch. Uh, they have nurtured me in many different areas, but especially in the area of end-time promise. I want to recommend every single one of Mike's teachings on this subject. You go to MikeBickle.com, you'll see different subjects. One of those subjects is end times, and uh, there's a lot of teachings there. And I just recommend that you don't just listen to me. L listen to Mike, read these other books, and let's allow ourselves to consider something that may seem new, but is really very, very old.